Welcome to the You Lead Podcast, brought to you by the Council for School Leadership of the Alberta Teachers Association. My name is Jeff Johnson. I'm a staff officer at the Alberta Teachers Association. You're entering the final module of a wonderful three days of learning through the 2020 Educational Leadership Academy. The Academy is an annual event presented by the ATA in collaboration with the Council for School Leadership. And today we have a, a number of guests. I'll just ask them to give a wave when, when I mention their name. Lynn Leslie is an area supervisor for Southwest Schools for the Calgary Catholic School Division. Uh, Dr. Phil McRae is one of my favorite buddies and co-workers. We work together as staff officers at the Alberta Teachers Association. Phil is in charge of educational research and, and uh, has his fingers in all kinds of good pies. We have Dr. Michael Rich from Harvard and from uh, working with the Children's Hospital there. Dr. Pazzi Salberg, who I know and many of us know from Helsinki and, and uh, now New South Wales at the University of New South Wales. And Kristen Hodgins, who is the president-elect of the Council for School Leadership for Alberta. And she also um, works with early childhood programs in Edmonton Catholic Schools, my former alma mater. So thank you for joining today. We're going to get started right away, and I will hand things over to Dr. McCray. Thank you, Jeff, and thank you for putting on the Education Leadership Academy. I think that this is a great opportunity for our colleagues um, to have a chance to uh, interact with some world's experts in a whole host of areas. I know that on Monday you had OECD, you had an epidemiologist and the co-chair of um, Alberta's uh, scientific advisory group on COVID-19. Um, and we're capping off this conversation um, this afternoon, looking at digital well-being and play and talking about how those uh, can be done reasonably and responsibly and healthy, healthy uh, in a healthy manner during COVID or times of COVID. So the way that we're going to work this afternoon's conversation will be Dr. Michael Rich from Harvard Medical School, who runs the Center on Media and Child Health at Boston Children's Hospital. And uh, just yesterday, I believe, did an open, wide open Reddit, uh, ask you anything about return to school. So I'm interested, I haven't talked to uh, Dr. Rich yet about how that went, but I'm sure you got a lot of questions um, from the Reddit team. Uh, and uh, he's also a public health um, uh, professor at Harvard Medical School. So Dr. Rich brings um, both expertise clearly in adolescent medicine, uh, clinical practice, health, but also in broader public health work and teaches that at Harvard Medical School. We'll take a break after uh, Dr. Michael Rich will spend about 30 minutes uh, sharing some thoughts with us. Then we'll open it up to Q&A. And I really encourage you to have a conversation um, and interact with Dr. Rich and Dr. Solberg and myself around the research that we're going to share with you. So in the, in the Q&A, I know that uh, Chris from the Council on School Leadership is going to help us curate and su summarize some of the questions. And uh, Lynn Leslie and Armand Doucette will be respondents um, for our different speakers. So Michael Rich will do a 30-minute presentation. We'll ask Lynn to give kind of response and some thoughts based on what she uh, knows and experiences as a, as a frontline um, uh, educator and teacher in Alberta. So without further ado, it is my great pleasure and privilege to introduce to you um, Dr. Michael Rich, my friend and colleague on the Growing Up Digital Research, but also 
um, perhaps the the most formed person on digital well-being uh, globally working out of Harvard Medical School. And uh, I turn it over to you, Michael. Thank you for um, spending this time with me. Um, I want to uh, share a number of resources um, from the Center on Media and Child Health um, in the context of returning to school uh, this fall. Um, First thing I want to do is is really define for all of us what is digital wellness. Um, When you think about it, um, although we think of the online world and the offline world is separate. Uh, The kids that we teach and that we raise as parents um, really are growing up in a world that is seamless between the two. And so what we need to do is really think about how to translate our concepts of wellness in physical, mental, and social ways um, into this new environment. And because we are moving in and out of this environment seamlessly and spending a great deal of time in it, in fact, a great deal more time since the pandemic, um, we, we need to use the same standards in both. And one of the things that I can offer to you, and you'll get links to these later, is something called the Family Digital Wellness Guide, um, which is... Um, available online for free um, at our website, uh, cmch.tv. And what you will find there is that we have developed a guide that really looks at the arc of childhood from infancy right through to adolescence um, and approaches it from a developmental standpoint um, and looks at the way that the screens in our world interface with that, how the kids use them, how they respond to them, their positive uh, ways to use them, um, things to be careful of and be aware of, and how to talk to your kids about them. And it's organized, um, excuse me for scrolling through fast, but just to give a sense of what's there, I offer that to you. um, And um, we'll go back to the presentation, but that is available at our website, either by carousel, the carousel at the top will allow you to go to it, or you can go to slash family digital wellness. So let's think about this environment kids are in. Well, the best data we have are no good because the pandemic has changed everything, but the most recent usage data we have for kids is that from right from birth, kids are using an amazing amount of screens, um, ranging uh, from... 42 minutes a day for zero to two years, right up to six hours and 40 minutes a day um, and in the teen years. Um, over half of that is now mobile, which allows them to be what they call multitasking about a third of the time. Um, and one thing we should clarify is this concept of media multitasking is actually a myth because the human brain is only capable of thinking of one thing at a time. And so what we're actually doing is rapidly switch tasking from thing to thing. But in the process of having two or more screens open, um, our adolescents are now on average getting just under 12 hours of screen exposure a day. Now, what does that do? Well, the question has always been in the past, how much screen time is is too much screen time bad for you? And one of the questions we asked um, 
uh, of this national survey where we looked at how much screen time kids were reporting um, and divided them into thirds. Um, for the third who had the most usage, uh, the moderate and the light usage. And, and the first issue that jumped right out at us is in terms of this cumulative exposure with media multitasking is where those thirds fell. Um, that the light users were up to three hours a day and a third of them, the heavy users, were 16 hours or more a day of exposure to screens. We asked these groups three questions. Are you getting A's and B's or C's and below? Um, are you getting in trouble a lot? And how content are you? And what struck us was the amount of screen time was related to these outcomes. Now, I'll be the first to let you know that this is not necessarily causal. Um, it may not even be contributory, but we believe that it may be cyclical in nature in the sense that if you think of a, a child who has low personal contentment, has a hard time making friends, et cetera, um, they are going to be more inclined to go to a screen for companionship, for distraction, for entertainment. Um, but then the more time they spend in front of a screen, the less time they're spending learning to make friends and develop social circles. And interestingly, um, the Good Alberta study that uh, we are doing in collaboration with the ATA um, found that all of you reported um, very similar findings from the three to five years since personal devices became used in common in the schools. And what you found is that there was a big uptick in emotional and social challenges uh, of the, the young people, um, including those that really needed uh, support for, for these challenges. Um, so you are seeing it on, on the, in the trenches, um, what we are seeing in, in a research sense. Let's take a step, though, to think about why these kids are on screen so much and understand that, particularly for teens, but for all children, the brain is growing and absorbing information very quickly. And these screen media provide a really fertile environment for the normal tasks of child and adolescent development. <clears throat> If you think about it, they seek experience, which they can get vicariously online. They seek independence from authority figures, teachers, parents, etc. Um, I've heard from many teachers about how many of their students randomly smile at their knees in class. They are becoming socially conscious, looking outside themselves to the larger world, and the internet allows them to make connections with those who are concerned about the same issues and, and want to band together to make a difference. They are building their identity. And one of the great things that the internet provides, particularly for those kids who historically were marginalized, isolated, often bullied, uh, ostracized, um, is a chance to find their community online. And finally, they seek with this new identity as they're developing, they seek connection. And Facebook, for example, is the largest nation on earth with more than 2.7 billion people who log on on a monthly basis. Instagram has 500 million logons every day. So let's think about the way the human brain develop, it develops. Uh, it goes from red to blue in this animation, um, which is kind of like how 
politics develops as I realize it. You go from red to blue, hopefully. Um, but the, the brain develops from the back to the front. So our visual cortex in, in the occiput, the back of the brain, develops long before the prefrontal cortex, uh, which is where our executive functions lie. Impulse control, future thinking, cause and effect, what we used to call the superego or the con conscience. Um, and this is something that we have to take into account when we realize how susceptible these kids are to be drawn into these digital environments of, of games, massively multi-user online role-playing games, of, of social media, um, and don't yet have the brakes or the steering wheel of their executive functions to guide them toward positive uses necessarily, or to even notice um, where the pitfalls might be. So one of the things that I am seeing a lot in clinical practice, and I'm sure that you're seeing the results of um, in classrooms, um, in part because you reported it in our research, um, is that kids are sleepy. Kids are sleep deprived. And when you ask them where their phone is at night, it is largely somewhere in their bedroom, whether it's on their bedside stand or even under their pillows. They're getting less sleep. 29% um, of teens and 12% of adults, parents, sleep with the phone in the bed with them. And they're getting poor quality sleep because they, want, they are leaving it on signal, on, on vibrate or something of that nature because they feel they need to wake up to respond to signals. And what this means is that they don't get to the deep sleep, um, the stage four deep REM sleep, where we move what we experience today from our short-term memory into our learning centers, where we consolidate our learning. And so even if the kids are staying awake in algebra class, they may not remember what they learned yesterday in algebra class. And this is, as um, many know, the term FOMO, which affects all of us, the fear of missing out. But I also have found that with kids and teens in particular, they suffer from something perhaps even more insidious, and that is what we call faux blow, which is the fear of being left out, the fear of not being part of the conversation. And this is something that is often taken advantage of, unfortunately, with cyberbullying, um, where kids have you know, uh, slander going on about them behind their back. And so one of the things that's really problematic is when parents learn that their child is being victimized or is victimizing others, their instinct is to take away their devices. Um, and yet for them, this is their early warning system. This is how they know what's going on. And so they see this as taking away their defenses rather than protecting them from harm. So this is a uh, photograph from a, a lunch break <laughs> at a high school. 72% um, of teens and 48% of their parents feel that they must respond immediately to any kind of signal, text, or tweet that, that they get, um, regardless of what else they're doing. And that results in having half of the teens and over three quarters of the parents feeling that the other is distracted when they're being, they're talking to each other, whether or not they have a phone in their hand or are looking at their phone. Um, there is now this sense that the phone overrides all other interactions. 
And so one of the questions that we're really looking at research-wise and clinically for that matter is, is this near infinite connectivity we have really undermining connectedness? And our connectedness is deeply engaged with our wellness, how well we are in a society, how we, we are as individuals, how mentally well we are. In looking at this issue of connectivity and connectedness, we looked at different forms of interaction and in real time measured young people's affective states. In other words, uh, we were able to sort of dive in on irregular intervals into young person's um, experience and ask them to report on how they were feeling in positive and negative ways. And also where, where they were in terms of interaction with others. Interestingly, um, there was really no difference in affect when they were texting from when they were not texting, um, in large part because they're texting a lot. And so it may, in fact, be the new baseline for young people in terms of their affective state, or they see texting as the exchange of um, information um, that is essentially neutral. However, when they're using social media, their negative affect went up by 21%. When they did a voice or video call with, with someone, their negative affect dropped by 36%. Their sadness dropped by 54%. And face-to-face -face interactions were by far the best, with 18% of po positive affect being 18% higher. So what I often recommend to my young people uh, that I care for is whenever you're interacting, look to upgrade by one. So instead of tweeting, texting, instead of texting, call, instead of calling, try to get together. Now, admittedly, that is much harder these days, although um, kids are getting together in ways that are physically distanced, like riding bikes together. They're getting together wearing masks when they want to be physically or have to be physically closer to each other. I'm sure that many of you are well aware of this photograph. This photograph was taken on the first day of school in a Georgia high school. Um, and um, what happened immediately after this is the student who took this picture was suspended from school for making the school look bad. Um, because these kids are all crowded together. Um, I see only one mask in the whole bunch. Um, and, um, the upshot of this was, interestingly, that they had 9% COVID positive positivity in the first week. Six students and three staff were infected. Um, the student who was suspended had that suspension listed, lifted, uh, but she was receiving and continues to receive threats of violence against her from parents and other students in the community. They've closed the school for cleaning after just one week being open, and they're on all remote learning. So I understand that um, the schools in Alberta are opening, uh, and, and uh, hopefully with some safety uh, tips that I will share with you momentarily. But I think we all have to be ready to be resilient, nimble, and flexible in case um, circumstances change, as they did in this case with Georgia. So how do we make school ASAP or as safe as possible? 
some tips. Um, I think we have to mandate hand, sanitize, uh, hand sanitization and washing with each environmental transition, when they come from home to school, when they come from, you know, when they come from the classroom to another room, to the bathroom, to eat, um, if they move for these things. So to think of each environment as a new set of exposures and they need to wash their hands for 20 seconds or use hand sanitizer. Um, and, and one of the things actually that, in terms of this that we recommend to parents is that they have hand sanitizer in a bottle attached to the child's backpack. Um, we need to mandate masks for students and staff because there's no way that even with the most rigorous uh, physical distancing that students and staff um, will be able to stay two meters apart at all times. Um, and you'll notice that I don't use the term social distancing, which is the common parlance now for staying uh, two meters or farther from each other. And the reason for that is that I think it's, it is a, um, a, a confusing misnomer. What we need to do for safety is physically distance from each other, but socially connect with each other in order to maintain our mental health. And so I will talk about physical di distancing and social connection um, because I think that we now have to be more conscious and aware of making that happen than we were when we could freely circulate with each other. I think it's a good idea to have outdoor classes as you can, um, as long as possible. Um, it is um, not going to be long as we head into the fall and things get cold. Um, but this may give our schools some time to look at our HVAC systems and make sure that they have HIPAA, HIPAA filtration. Um, and it may not be possible for many schools. So these are issues that we need to confront. Um, plexiglass partitions where you can't be uh, two meters or more apart um, with from either a staff or students. Um, as much as possible, try to keep students in the same room for as long as they can for both learning and for eating lunch. Um, moving faculty and staff, the fewer people you are moving from space to space, the less chance there is for, for transmission. Um, and those that move should change their masks with each move. Um, disinfect surfaces um, with uh, Lysol or, or chlorine-based uh, cleaners with each change of students and staff. And one thing I would suggest uh, for the schools is to take a page from the Realtor's Playbook and offer your students and families a video walkthrough of the school and their school schedule before they get there. Because obviously this is really helpful for kids who are new to the school have never seen it before, but it's going to be a new school for every child in that school in the sense that we are going to have different uh, physical um, layouts. We're going to have different physical uh, maps and routes for moving through the school. Um, we will have different rhythms because um, those uh, new changes will take time. And so I think that to demystify it and to reduce parents' uh, anxiety, um, as well as to give the kids a sense of their school at, before they even enter it. Um, this might be a good idea to uh, 
walk a, a smartphone or a video camera through your school and, and, and show the child, um, even doing it grade by grade, what their day would be like and how they would move through the space. So how do we make our students as safe as possible? Um, I think it's really important that parents make sure that they do not send their child to school with any of the long list of symptoms of COVID um, until they are cleared by a doctor. If, so if the kid has a runny nose or is sneezing or loses taste or smell, um, certainly if they have a fever, and I would actually encourage parents to take their temperature before the child leaves, leaves home every day um, because a fever is sometimes the earliest warning uh, of, of development of, of, of COVID. They should bring lunch from home in a paper bag, um, which can be thrown away. Um, they should, we should encourage the child personalizing masks. Some schools will be offering masks um, or offering masks that will, um, you know, be used if kids don't have a mask of their own. Um, but one of the things that can make it kind of fun and um, en more enjoyable than uh, onerous to the kids is for them to personalize the mask, to choose the fabric of a cloth mask if they use it and, wa and wash it. Um, but I think we should encourage them to observe a mask code the way they observe a dress code in the sense that you don't want to have something that has images that are um, scary or divisive or political um, or um, obscene, if you will. So to have a mask code, much like you have a dress code about what t-shirts can be worn, et cetera. Um, have them hand sanitize and wash with each environmental transition that they make from home to school, et cetera, um, with clip-on hand sanitizer bottles for their backpacks. Um, if the school supplies masks, um, then encourage them to write their names on the mask. And the reason for this is not just to, you know, personalize them. They can draw pictures or whatever, but so that kids don't mix masks up or intentionally trade them around. Um, so this should be, these masks should be personalized to the young person. And if they're disposable, they need to be disposed at the end of each usage. Um, have them come home and change their clothes and put them in the wash um, because we do not know what's, uh, what they're carrying home. And to be aware to distance or mask when around vulnerable family members like grandparents or, or, or others with uh, chronic medical conditions. Um, one of the things that we know about this uh, is that while kids tend to not get as sick, um, they also tend to carry the virus um, more easily in an asymptomatic way. So they may look perfectly fine, but still bring the virus back home. And one interesting thing that we actually just found is that the viral load, um, the, num the amount of viral particles they have in them is not related to their level of symptoms. So you can have somebody who's completely asymptomatic who has as much as a hundred million times the viral load as someone who is symptomatic. Um, so I think that we cannot depend on symptoms um, to, as a, an indicator, um, nor can we assume that because the kids are well, they're not carriers. So we have to protect those that they come home to. 
And finally, should you need it, um, how do we make distance learning as effective as possible? Um, I think it's really important to keep a regular school schedule and period system, uh, both so the kids don't screw up their circadian, their day-night wake-sleep schedules, as happened in the springtime for many kids, um, and to keep the period system so that we are not exceeding their attention span with our uh, didactic teaching. Um, I think it's important to take attendance. Um, 26% of the Boston public school students never logged on in the sp spring. So we uh, effectively had um, a quarter of our student population drop out completely for a semester. We have to build in breaks between classes, just as they would have been moving around the school. They need to get up, move their legs, go get a snack, run around a little bit before they can sit down for the next uh, setting of uh, what we all know as Zoom fatigue. Um, help them to treat their device, the laptop, the tablet, or if they're only working with a smartphone, the smartphone, as a tool, not a toy, a tool for learning. One of the possible silver linings of the cloud of this lockdown is that kids have started to shift their relationship with these devices from being pure playground, something they would run to when they got home from school, to being a tool for learning, for communicating, and for connecting. Um, and I think we want to in, in, encourage that and reinforce that, that learn from it, close it and move on um, to do something else. Go ride your bike or, or, or uh, shoot hoops or something else um, so that it doesn't become a 24-7 wall-to-wall distraction. Have a dedicated space for them to do schoolwork. You'll see in this image, uh, mom is behind um, the student. Um, it's good to have a place where the work ethic is sort of accepted and is the way things are done and is not the space where they would, even if they're using the same device, be watching uh, videos or playing a game. Um, I think it's really important to have a unifying virtual background for the teacher and the students for a number of reasons. One is that, you know, we don't want to reveal those who have and those who have not um, and, and further um, alter the equity in the, in the students. Um, this gives, um, unfortunately, gives reason for kids to, uh, to bully each other or tease each other. Um, and you can have, you know, the background be, you know, uh, uh, Mrs. Driscoll's third grade math. Um, and it unifies them and it fo they focus on what um, they're there for. Um, have the students turn off their self-view so they're not mugging for the camera and have them see only the teacher um, except for when a student is answering a question or interacting with the teacher. And also I would encourage a full class gallery view at the opening of the class so that they can say hi to each other, wave to each other, and re reconnect with their identity as a class. And finally, build in recess time, something I hope we are going to hear more from um, Dr. Salberg on, um, because Finland has a great system where they um, have as much research, recess time as 
um, as didactic teaching time and they get very good results. And that's because that is the time in which kids are learning, doing their social emotional learning. They're connecting with each other and they can group chat. They can game um, in games like um, Minecraft. Uh, but these are ways that they can build in um, relationships and build that those social emotional skills that are, are much more difficult to do in a remote way. So finally, I want to give you also another research a resource besides the Family Digital Wellness Guide, and that is uh, we just released a uh, Digital Wellness Goes Back to School, and I'm going to link to that. Um, this is where it is on our website. I'll give you the um, uh, give you the uh, URL uh, immediately after this. And uh, let's see, we've got to go back to our final slide. So this is where the resources are, and um, thank you for listening, and I uh, open it to questions. Thank you, Michael. Um, as always, I think really insightful, and uh, I really appreciate that you have taken some time to think through the practicalities of return to school. I know you and I have talked a lot about environmental transitions and what that looks like. Um, what I'd like to do now is, is invite Lynn to kind of be a respondent, give some thoughts on what she heard. And then Chris, um, you should be getting some questions coming in and some questions that, uh, that you might want to pose to Michael. So I'll turn it to Lynn and, uh, and then to Chris. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Rich. That was, uh, um, you know, such a broad overview of, of really what we're in for here when it looks at uh, at trying to support students and families and uh, and ourselves in the process of navigating through this continually changing environment, and so um, I really appreciated the the you know the advice you shared around uh, the word I put down was uh, not necessarily normalize it but personalize it, and you know giving giving that connection through those um, you know the opportunity to you know decorate the mask or or to um, walk through with the video to show what the school is going to look like, because that's where a lot of the anxiety is coming from, right, is the unknown, not knowing what it's going to look like. And so I, I really appreciated those, um, that information. The other thing I found really interesting about your research, and I wondered if you could speak a little bit more about that, was um, the idea of you had shared a slide about uh, um, when you go from uh, – tweeting to texting to uh, to then um, more of a video. Can you talk a little bit about that research, but then also how as teachers um, or even as principals trying to communicate out to the public, how do you manage all of that and try to get to those more personal approaches in communicating in the digital world? Oh, well, that, that's a great um, question um, because it actually speaks to the uh, third phase of the Good Alberta research that uh, we're going to be doing. Um, and that is that we use um, a methodology that we developed called measuring youth media exposure. And what it is is actually a, uh, a, an app on the, the participants' smartphones that um, – pings into their uh, into them at random intervals while they are awake um, and um, not in school um, because we don't want to interrupt that. And what it does is it says it asks them where they are, what they're doing, um, who they're with, um, 
whether they are using a screen or screens, what they're paying first, second, and third most attention to in this multitasking sort of environment. You know, or, you know, I'm doing homework, but I'm also watching a movie and I'm texting with my friends and I'm downloading music. Um, and um, it also asks them positive and negative affect, you know, are you happy, sad, anxious, guilty? Um, this is a standardized scale for how they are feeling at that very moment. Um, and then actually, for some of them, they actually do a video pan of their environment. So you look and see what, what's around them. Anyway, um, that being said, what we did is we um, took the those kids who were doing these different types of interactions with others, and we looked at their affect at that moment. Um, and what we found is that the me means of communicating is integrally um, connected with how they feel. Mm -hmm. um, and if you think about it, while social media on the face of it could be a wonderful thing, it's how we use it in general that gets us in trouble. Um, instead of being authentic, to each other. We use it to tell each other how great we are, right? We market ourselves mm -hmm. to each other. Or what you know, we're having for dinner. <laughs> right, what we're having for dinner. Or look at the cool vacation I'm taking. Or look at my hot boyfriend or whatever, right? And so when people go to it, and they go to it also perhaps for the wrong reasons because they feel that it's a safer way of, um, you know, being in touch with people, a, a, a more arm's length way, um, and perhaps even a way to kind of stalk people, if you will, and sort of pruriently watch what they're doing, um, is that those people, particularly those who are doing it because of social anxiety, look at that and say, everybody else is happier than me. Everybody else is so successful and so wonderful and having the best dinners, um, you know, that um, I, I'm not. And so... Um, it's really looking at what is the actual interaction that's occurring. Um, and, and if, is it um, real time or is it asynchronous? Asynchronous is not as good as real time. Um, you know, uh, and so what we found is that being in the same space with someone, you're picking up way more than you do even when you're looking at someone on a screen. You know, you get the vibe in the room. You know when they're kind of sad, but laughing anyway. You know when they're kind of physically dragging themselves around. You get the body language. Um, so I think it, it really speaks to how important it is to be conscious of what is being transmitted and what is being received in terms of is, is what's being transmitted being received the same way because an awful lot of the cyberbullying we see is actually thought of as just teasing by this sender mm -hmm. that the receiver is hurt by. So I think we, we just need to be very conscious of, especially as we are limited to these more distanced devices of, of exactly how we're communicating and how that affects mm -hmm. each other. Yeah. I think, I think the point you make about, you know, it's, it's, it's not necessarily the vehicle, but it's what, how the communication is being, you know, that, that connection between you know, when it's sent and when it's received, right? And so looking at it, whether it be in the digital world or in the face-to-face -face world or in the text world, to really, you know, trying to make those, um, those clear connections. So this kind of brings me to my, my next point then, and, and that is, again, around the question of masks. 
And uh, we know now here in Alberta, kids from grade four up are going to be wearing masks. Teachers are going to be wearing masks. Administrators are going to be wearing masks. Um, what role do you think that's going to play on connection? On, on really, um, you know, a lot of the work we do in schools is collaborative learning. It is about getting together as teams. Then you see kids in the hallways working on projects. And it really is about that coming together as a community, whether it be in a small group, a whole class, or, or a school community. So, you know, masks kind of create a bit of a barrier in my mind to some extent. But then also there's sort of those layers of of disconnections that occur because of the current isolation, um, you know, scenarios that we're putting into place. And so what kind of ideas do you have around that or thoughts around that? And then also what suggestions do you have as far as, as um, you know, building that sense of well-being and community and connection in the COVID world, in your COVID classroom, in your COVID cl- uh, school? Well, I think the the most important thing um, in some ways is to recognize that we lose a lot when we can't see the whole face of someone. You know, um, we have to decode from the crinkles of their eyes, whether they're smiling or frowning (laughs) or or, um, sticking their tongue out at you or or whatever. Um, You know, so there's that. And, And I think that that also extends to the distance learning piece, which is um, having, you know, switched abruptly from seeing my patients in person to all telehealth back in March. Um, One of the things that um, I discovered was, first of all, I had far fewer no-shows. More people showed up for their (laughs) visits, um, in part because uh, I see a lot of kids who have issues with gaming and stuff, and they think I'm going to yank it away from them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel a lot safer if I'm on that screen, right? <laughs> um, I can't reach in and pull him into the hospital. Um, but, but the other piece of it is I w- found I was utterly exhausted at the end of the day. And that's because instead of having that visceral physical connection with someone, um, it's more than just, you know, the physical exam. It's really understanding that we pick up through all our senses what's going on with a person. And I was having to um, decode from what I was seeing and hearing and translate that into the understandings I would have had if I were in the same room with them. I think that's going to be the same for teachers. I think that's going to be really hard for this in the screen, but also with the masks on. Um, I think that we have to acknowledge to the kids that wearing a mask is not fun, right? Um, because if we sort of say, you know, wear it, don't worry about it, they're going to pull it off. It's sort of the same as telling a kid before you give them an immunization, this is going to pinch a little bit, right? (laughs) So you don't pretend this won't hurt, right? Um, Let's acknowledge that it is a pain for all of us, Mm -hmm. uh, but we have to work with it. Um, And I think also uh, one of the things that kids have that adults sometimes unfortunately lose is a natural empathy for others. And so if we can remind them that the, the mask is more to protect other people from them than protecting them from other people, mm-hmm. then you can, you know, end run this business of I'm macho, I'm tough, I don't need a mask, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's really important. And I think that we need to learn to develop a new sky, style of communication. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that it's particularly hard since – you know, we already have these issues around teachers touching students, you know, putting an arm around a student or touching an elbow or touching a hand. Um, yeah. and, and so we lose that 
as well. So I think that we just have to um, reinvent, in a way, our interactions and the kids' interactions with each other. Mm -hmm. And I think especially, you know, at the elementary level, I mean, if you walk into a school and I mean, it's it's hugs, right? That's that you get. I mean, they're just they're just hungry for that emotional connection. And, um, you know, you know, even in June when we had students coming in and, you know, they their their first reaction is to to run. Oh, Miss Leslie. And it's kind of this. There's almost this almost like it's harsh disconnect emotionally that we go through whenever we have these barriers in place. And so that's my real worry is, is um, so many of our students are coming um, to us with that real need for connection. And, um, um, and we need it too. Oh, of course. Right. (laughs) They don't pay us enough to do this work, right? Our our goodies are those hugs and those connections. Right. So I think, I, I think that we have, to also take care of ourselves, mm-hmm. right? And and you know what I will say to parents and teachers and other you know colleague doctors is, remember what happens when the, air, the when the oxygen masks drop from the ceiling in the plane. You put yours on first. You have to take care of yourself in order to be effective yeah. in taking care of yeah. them. It's going to be such a shift for teachers, um, as we were doing our classrooms in, in June, just trying to prep a little bit, trying to maximize spaces, just getting ahead of the game a little bit. Um, it, it was interesting in the conversations with teachers because, you know, they've got the shared resources and they've got um, their favorite books and they've got their reading centers. And there's just so many components to this that are threaded into the work of teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's so, it's kind of like unraveling these pieces so that it, Number one is 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 um, manageable from a logistical perspective, but then there's also this whole other pedagogical piece that that we're entering into new territory with. Right, and particularly when you're helping an individual student with an individual problem, um, you know that the, it's going to be very hard when you're used to walking up to their desk, putting a hand on their shoulder, and and helping them figure out that math problem, or you know help helping them you know uh, work through a, a difficult reading passage. Um, that you can't do from two meters away. You know, it just it, it's very very hard. So I think we're just, I mean, I think we're going to have to um, take this crisis, you know, which in Chinese, the Chinese character for crisis combines danger and opportunity. Um, And we have to find the opportunity. (laughs) We have to find the opportunity in this danger. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, yeah, I think the point you make there is just so important is, is finding that opportunity. And it makes me think of about the work that we've done with CSL around agile schools and really trying to be um, responsive in a way where we do capitalize on that opportunity. And we, we, you know, it's so easy to go down that deficit thinking and it, it, it really is um, deflating. And I know we have to stay real, but at the same time, I think that being able to find those, you know, where is our next step as, you know, where is that next first step that we can take as we start to kind of unravel these pieces? I think, you know, to some extent that's going to contribute and play a lot into our psyche around, um, you know, where do we begin? And, and, you know, as some would say, you begin with the first step. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and, and I, I also think uh, the other thing I want to really um, reach out to you, it's okay to be selfish for your own family. Mm-hmm. You have to remember that you're going home to 
ch your children, to your parents, sometimes to um, members of your of your bubble, if you will, mm -hmm. um, having been outside the bubble, and that that you are a carrier potentially of of something that could harm them. So it is okay to be selfish for your own, mm -hmm. uh, and to um, acknowledge that not to not to pretend like I, I, I it doesn't bother me or whatever mm -hmm. I think we have to take care of each other that way too is and, and I think that's such an important point as school leaders as well is remembering um, not only to take care of ourselves but to make sure that we're reminding teachers that it's okay for them to take care of themselves too because they're so again that compassion fatigue um, that you know we're all kind of experiencing over the last couple of years and now even it's amplified but but just remembering um, you know to, to take that time to give yourself and to give others permission um, mm -hmm to be okay with what it is right now. And it may not be where we want it to be, but, but it's okay. You know, right. this is a, our, our first sort of part of it. So yeah, certainly lots of, of things to, to consider and to think about as we're starting to ramp back up now into, into school start. Um, yeah, it's, it's. One other thing actually I, w I would throw out there is remember that a lot of our teaching isn't verbal or lecturing, it's modeling. And so mm -hmm. if we can model Great for point. our yeah. students how to manage this uh, and Phil's modeling mask wearing, I, you I know, actually, Phil, Phil. Phil is, I think <laughs> Phil is better looking with the mask on actually. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, no, but, but seriously, I think that, that, that it's really important. It's really important to, um, to recognize that it's how we are that's mm -hmm. going to help the kids particularly if they're feeling fearful. If yeah. we're feeling anxious and fearful and, and, and living that, they're going to pick up on that. And, and that just then snowballs. So I think that it's really important to take care of ourselves. And it's okay to go to the teacher's lounge and cry once in a while. Yes, or the principal's office. That's where we get a lot of it. Like it's perfectly, perfectly fine. And you know, right. I think my sort of my final piece here, and I know we've got to kind of move on here with uh, with the the group. Um, but you started out the presentation today talking about um, three sort of wellness uh, things, that looking at the the physical, the mental, and the social. And I think today we had an opportunity to talk a little bit about all of them. You know maintaining like you said the physical distance but the social connection right and, yeah. and and then from a mental perspective making sure that we're taking care of ourselves and mm -hmm. that we're giving ourselves and our teachers uh, and our colleagues and our friends and our families that that um permission to take care of ourselves and, and to be really mindful of of how as as teachers as educators we're givers yeah. and and so making sure we're also being kind to ourselves and giving to ourselves as well and so i thank you for all of those uh uh that um conversation around those i think they're really important reminders for when as we move now into into opening and i'm really excited to hear more about this uh myme uh i put the acronym of it Yes. My, yep. Or mine. You know, it's not Marcel Marceau, though. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Elf, so I'm in a box. <laughs> no, sorry. What about this mime? <laughs> uh, well, you know, it, it, if you would let me, I could talk about it for 40 straight hours. Next um, session, but, Jeff. Let, next right. session. <laughs> but but, but Phil, is, Phil is a the resident expert, and you can bend his ear about awesome. it. Awesome. Super. Well, thank you so much. I'm not sure, Chris, I'm probably way out of time. So, But thank you, Dr. Rich. It was really a pleasure to 
with you today. Well, I will stay with you for the for the whole session, and we can talk at the end, I believe. Is Fabulous. that right, Phil? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, thank Lynn. Actually, many questions and, and ideas have come up from your conversation, so thank you. Um, Dr. Rich, one of the um, kind of threads of things going through right now, something popped up on my phone the other day saying since COVID, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And a number of the questions and conversations that are coming through right now um, are reflecting on that. And I know as teachers, that's one of the hardest things we're experiencing. Um, you know, you said on one hand, Synchronous learning is the best online. Well, what if there's only one device in the house and how are we coping and dealing and supporting with that? You mentioned right. that masks should be washed all the time and clothing and all that. Well, what if there is a soap in the house to do that? Yeah. And there's so many things impacting our families and you know, it goes back to the whole mental health and all that of that. So where do you see us coping with um, how to support that through the education? Well, um, unfortunately, um, my answer will be we need resources to do these things. Right. And and, you know, that's that's the rich get richer and poor get poorer state of our current political situation, you know. Um, and so I think that we have to be um, very conscious of um, those kids. And, and it's not just um, washing and devices. It's even it's like food. Um, food security, um, at least in our schools, um, there are some school systems where 80 or 90% of the kids get their only or their most meaningful meals at school. Um, and, and so um, I think we have to take a step back at, and really think about this. And unfortunately, we're in kind of a, a, a cold political climate for that um, right now. Um, and um, this is where we have to get creative. And as I say, we have to reinvent ourselves um, and, and, and really think this through. Uh, because I, you know, as they say, you can't get blood from a stone, but maybe we can, um, figure out ways to share and to at least create some equity within our own environments. Because in many communities, um, there is, a great polarization between the haves and the have nots. Can we work a way to have the haves help subsidize the have nots, at least in the crisis? Um, so I, 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 I don't have any quick and easy answers to it, but um, I, I do have hopes and dreams that, you know, if we all get shoulder to shoulder and, and work for them, maybe we can make it work. But I think the first step is being conscious of that inequity and, and, and really working to address it. Um, the need for physical activity and quality physical education is coming up through and through the strand. Can you speak to, you know, how can that be supported? Where do we need to go? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, and beyond that, the, the physical health piece, I mean, um, kids need to get their yayas out. Kids need to be physical. They need to. They need to move. That they need, to, particularly boys. You know, I mean, otherwise you're saying sit down and shut up, and they're jumping up and you know going to the window and doing all this because they, they need to do it to pump the blood to their brain. You know, they need to. They need to be moving. And so I think again, this is a matter of being conscious of it. Um, but there are physical activities that can be done in, in safer ways. Um, obviously cross country running is better than playing American football, right? Um, in terms of, you know, how, how healthy it is. Um, so I think that we need to, um, really think through 
this issue of physical distancing while social connecting um, and build in the physical needs, um, not just for exercise, but for eating and um, literally for downtime. Um, because doing it all here is exhausting and um, ultimately we're going to lose their attention. Um, one of the things that also that I'm very concerned about uh, with this, it's a, it's a bit of an indirect connection, but um, you know, I think we're going to head into this school year and be thinking of what has happened to us as the summer slump on steroids right? Say, oh my God, our kids are not just a summer, but a semester and a summer behind and really want to hammer away on the academics. The kids are all going to be into rebuilding their tribes, right? They're all going to be into figuring out how to get along and who's that. I mean, particularly the kids who are, you know, sort of middle school and high school where, you know, the last time you saw this kid, he was three feet tall and now he's six feet tall with a beard. Right. Um, and, 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 you know, kind of figuring out who they are and how we relate to each other. Um, we have to pay real attention to the social emotional learning that goes on because that's at least as important as the academic learning. Um, that's something that I use every day now, but I don't use a lot of my third grade math every day. Um, so I think that we, we have to, and, and frankly, physical activity recess Downtime is is the time where that all occurs. That doesn't happen when we're learning equations. You know, and that you mentioned, um, you know, that that need to connect and getting more important all the time. And I think we're kind of all in a good space here in Edmonton. The days are long. The weather's warmer. We're outside. And as we're getting into this routine, like I think about the most difficult thing is moving into our winter. And we know the learning will be able to take place for a little while there. But then I think the bigger thing is as our numbers spike again, if that's what's happening in our schools, and then we are forced to be inside and not socially interacting. How's that going to affect those teenagers who really, um, you know, that, that mental health piece there and where's that going to go? Well, I, you know, interestingly, I think we, again, this is a place to reinvent. Um, and, and these uh, issues like, um, you know, uh, massively multi-user online role-playing games, which previously were just a distraction from more important things, are now where kids hang out, you know? Um, they're, they're where they spend time with each other. And so while everyone is going, oh my God, Fortnite is going to ruin, you know, the, the next generation, um, may, you know, when I talk to patients about Fortnite, they don't talk about it as a game or as something they win or lose. They talk about it as being with their friends. Yeah. And so I think that we have to um, kind of rethink these tools available to us, these opportunities avail to, available to us, and do the best we can with them. Um, I, I, I also want to be sure that we're not sort of saying, uh, well, we'll use this to get to 60% of ideal. Um, in other words, to be constantly trying to get back to the Shangri-La we had before, which wasn't a Shangri-La, in fact, um, but to look at new opportunities. I mean, this COVID pandemic has really just accelerated some, you know, changes in society that were already happening. Um, we were moving to more online, you know, behaviors. We were moving to more online um, teaching health 
you know, care, et cetera, et cetera. It just, you know, like just shot us, it shot an afterburner on us, you know, and, and forced us into it. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think we need to just really rethink and make the best of it. And some of it may be better than what we had. Um, there have been a number of kind of technical questions about personal protective equipment. How geared up should teachers be in your mind? Um, you know, what sorts of things should be in place or, or should we expect to have in place? And then along with that kind of the climate of the school, um, use of microwaves and, and, and um, you know, you talked about clothing, just all of those real cleanliness and, and um, safety things. You can comment a little deeper. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it's one thing to tell you the ideal; it's another thing to figure it out practically. You know, I mean, the kids are not going to keep their masks on all the time. We're going to have to constantly be reminding them to do that. Um, and, um, but I think that the first step is really to be conscious and aware. I mean, one uh, one thing that um, we really uh, are a little bit saved by is that the um, transmission over surfaces is probably not as bad as we thir- first thought. Um, so, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't wipe things down. Um, it just means that we're probably not in as much risk. I don't think we have to be in full hazmat suits um, to teach kids. Um, but I also don't think that we should assume that um, any covering is good covering. I mean, there have been studies. Um, done of the different masks and you know for example these neck gaiters and um, bandanas really don't do very much um, as opposed to a, a surgical mask that be form fitted over the nose and mouth. Um, I think that if if they were if I were to say one single most uh, important thing it would be hand washing and and hand sanitizing on a really regular basis. Um, and the other piece is to educate and empower parents and kids not to come to school if they have any hint that they could be infected. And, you know, that's going to change our attendance a lot because if you think of all the false sniffles that happen, right. um, You know, we're, we're going to have a lot of kids who will at least stay out until they've seen a doctor and the doctor says, this isn't COVID, you know, go to school and shut up. You know, Um, but, but I think that we have to, um, be aware of the fact that at this, you know, point in our knowledge of this virus, we can't determine in a superficial way, we can't determine in a quick way who's going to be, you know, a a carrier and who's not. And that includes asymptomatic kids, kids who feel perfectly fine, who may, as I say, have a viral load a hundred million times that of somebody who's symptomatic and be a super spreader. Yeah. Just back to the masks for a minute, because I know I've had this questions, and I know one of the things Edmonton Catholic was providing is masks in addition to shields. So is it safe to take off my mask and read with a shield to a group of children? Like where is, you know, where, because they always say it should be both. But, it, you know, is, there's so much you're going to lose without that facial expression. I mean, our whole early learning is speech and, and language. And how do you teach a child to read without seeing their faces? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the, what we're doing any, anyway and always are doing is we're doing constant risk-benefit analyses, right? You know, is the risk, uh, is, is the benefit worth the risk, if you will? Um, and, you know, I think that, for example, if you were to wear a face shield, but sit farther away from the kids, 
Um, that means you have to have broader, you know, uh, facial expressions. You have to, you know, but but I think that these are choices that can be made. Um, I think we can work on um, reading out loud and not spitting as much. Um, things like that. You know, I mean, we can. I mean, I, I think we just need to be more conscious of these things. But I'm also keenly aware of the loss of facial expressions um, because um, not just in terms of teaching them to read, but in terms of making them feel loved and accepted and supported. Um, that That is so essential, particularly in the early years. Huge. Um, I just want to open it up to the other panelists for a minute in case I've missed something in that long list of questions or comments or anything else they'd like to see rehighlighted. Uh, I got a question, Dr. Rich, uh, just a quick one. Um, you had mentioned about the, and I agreed with pretty much everything on the list. The one where I, I'm wondering about the realities and the possibilities because of the equity is if we go to distance learning, the capacity of being able to keep the same regular classroom schedule when you have multiple kids, maybe not enough devices, uh, you don't really have a working space because you have five people in a small apartment, let's say. I wonder about that versus maybe creating a new schedule of synchronous distance learning online for elementary, maybe in the morning. And we mentioned this on Monday, but morning would be elementary, middle school would be in the middle of the day, and then high school a bit later. Uh, and then creating a bit more of an equity for everyone. Uh, so it's, it's a bit of a difference than the regular schedule, but it's sort of, when you look at the risk reward, it might actually hit a lot more in terms of the equity and that might be more useful. That's a question that I was wondering right when you put it there, because it seems to be going against a lot of what has been out there so far, particularly because of the equity. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I, I thank you for catching that. I actually um, misspoke, I guess, um, in the sense that I, what I'm really concerned about is that kids keep a healthy circadian rhythm. You know, that they don't stay up all night and sleep all day, um, as happened in many cases in the spring and into the summer. Um, I, I think there are other inequities, too, that need to be addressed by changing the schedule around. And that is, if mom and dad have to work, how do we, how do, we do this, right? And so we may need to schedule classes at different times than we would have normally, um, or, or that... W- necessarily in parallel as what would happen in a physical school building and in-person teaching. Um, uh, so I, I, I appreciate you uh, you calling me on that because um, I, I do think that we need to be a little creative in terms of that. I also think we need to build in downtime yeah. in between them because I, I think it's a whole lot more exhausting to sit in front of a, a tablet or a laptop um, and go to the next tablet, laptop lesson um, than it is to go from class to class, you know, when you can walk and stretch your legs and punch your friends in the arm and, you know, do all the things you do between classes. No, I completely agree. And give them a hard time about masks. And, you know. <laughs> I like your mask. Put it back on. Um, listen, with that, uh, first I want to thank Chris for curating the questions and making them come alive. And Lynn for your wisdom and uh, and your response. And of course, Michael, um, for all of your brilliance and uh, insight, and I think um, being a really wise listener as well, 
um, not only to patients and others, but you are a synthetic, really intelligent thinker about here's the situation, let's adapt and let's take that complexity and, and respond to it. And I think being agile and responsive is um, in this time of kind of unprecedented unknown approaches is a challenge. And also thinking not just short term, but about the long term mental health and well-being. Absolutely. So, you know, and, I think that's that's critical. And, and, and it's our mental health, too. And I think that we can't beat ourselves up for not being perfect. Um, we, we should just accept right up front that we're going to be imperfect and then work to perfect ourselves uh, all the time. But, you know, we are human. And, um, you know, let's remember, we never learn anything from something we do perfectly the first time. It's the mistakes we make that we learn from. So... Um, I think we have to just uh, cut ourselves a little slack um, and uh, remain aware and just keep getting better and better.